Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell on High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. It's now nearly a month since the Russian invasion of Ukraine began and the emerging consensus in the West is that the war has settled into an ugly, wretched, grinding stalemate due in part to the lumbering incompetence of the Russian military and in larger part to the determined, skillful, and resilient resistance by Ukraine's defense forces and its people. Vladimir Putin's war plan, a shock and awe campaign using ground and air power to quickly seize Kiev, Kharkiv, and other major Ukrainian cities to force a change of government and effectively take over the country, has, to put a fine point on the matter, failed with Russia now making only marginal gains each day while suffering unexpectedly large battlefield losses of as many as 14,000 troops. But as anyone watching cable news can tell you, the military and strategic failure of the initial Russian campaign does not mean that the war is over or close to over or even heading in the direction of being over. Instead, Russia is increasingly and indiscriminately targeting civilians with a brutal and barbaric assault from the air, raining down bombs and missiles and mortar fire on apartment blocks, businesses, schools, hospitals, and even bomb shelters. As the Institute of War Studies put it in a comprehensive and authoritative assessment of the situation on the ground released last weekend, quote, stalemate is not armistice or ceasefire. It's a condition in war in which each side conducts offensive operations that do not fundamentally alter the situation. Those operations can be very damaging and cause enormous casualties. If the war in Ukraine settles into a stalemate condition, Russian forces will continue to bomb and bombard Ukrainian cities, even as Ukrainian forces impose losses on Russian attackers and conduct counterattacks of their own. Ukraine's defeat of the initial Russian campaign may therefore set conditions for a devastating protraction of the conflict and a dangerous new period testing the resolve of Ukraine and the West." A grim forecast indeed, but one we all need to come to grips with as this terrible conflict could easily dominate the news, U.S. foreign policy and domestic politics and the state of international relations for many months to come and also have enormous repercussions for the great power rivalries and the global balance of power for even longer. To help us sort through and suss out the Russia-Ukraine shit show, where things stand, where we're headed and just how fucking freaked out we all should really be, we are lucky to have with us this week for a special two-part episode of Hell and High Water, a man whose brilliance when it comes to all things military, geopolitical, and Russia-specific is undisputed and almost as titanic as his reputation for three other things. A, affability, B, accessibility, and C, having literally the worst taste in music of anyone with a public platform in the Western Hemisphere. That's right. Here he is. The one and only Tom Nichols. I think the high water mark of Russian power passed a month ago, and you're never going to see a Russia that powerful and capable again. I think, if anything, Putin might be in some kind of an existential funk because somewhere inside he realizes how completely badly he has screwed the pooch here. Before Donald Trump became president, you'd probably never heard of Tom Nichols unless you moved in elite academic, military, or foreign policy circles where his reputation as one of the biggest brains out there on international affairs, and in particular on Russia, nuclear weapons, and strategy, and national security, was solid gold. Born in Chicopee, Massachusetts in 1960, Nichols managed by the time he was 35 
to have earned a bachelor's degree from Boston University, a master's from Columbia, and a PhD from Georgetown, served on the faculty at Dartmouth, and worked as a legislative aide to Pennsylvania Senator John Hines, and become a five-time undefeated Jeopardy champion, which is still, to be honest, and to this day, his most towering personal achievement. From 1997 until stepping down earlier this month, Tom occupied a prestigious perch on the faculty of the U.S. Naval War College. He is the author or editor of eight books, the most recent of which is Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy, and is now a contributor to The Atlantic, for which he writes the excellent newsletter, Peacefield. It was Donald Trump, however, or rather Tom's righteous, articulate, and often hilarious denunciations of Trump that gained him a wider following in the wider world. In 2016, Tom urged his fellow conservatives to vote for Hillary Clinton, even if they hated her, because Trump, he said, was, quote, too mentally unstable to serve as commander in chief. Two years later, in the fall of 2018, disgusted by what he saw as the unprincipled Republican support for Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court, Tom renounced his membership in the Republican Party and became an independent. By then, Tom had become a bit of a fixture on cable TV, and in particular on MSNBC's Morning Joe, where I would frequently have the pleasure of his company, his insights, and his bonhomie. Right around that time, Morning Joe was also the site of Tom's greatest public humiliation, a moment I was lucky enough and am proud to say I took gleeful part in. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll have to listen to this podcast where we rehearse it and relitigate it in detail. There will be no spoilers here other than a simple two-word hint. Led Zeppelin. Even though his taste in music is truly and utterly appalling, Tom owns his strange and inexplicable preferences, from loving Toto and Barry Manilow to hating the Velvet Underground and preferring Billy Joel to Bruce Springsteen, with pride, arguing for those insane positions with vigor, and he takes the abuse that he routinely gets and absolutely deserves for all of it with good humor, grace, and equanimity. As it happens, those qualities are also present in his analysis and commentary on his areas of intellectual expertise, which comes in handy right about now when the situation in Ukraine and Russia is so grim and ominous and foreboding that listening to people who know the most about what's happening over there often makes you want to pull the covers over your head for, you know, like the next six months or even stick your head in the oven instead. Listening to Tom Nichols isn't like that. He is serious, sober, deeply knowledgeable, and in no way inclined towards panglossian bromides or rosy scenarios. But he also brings a welcome perspective to the conversation, a sense of level-headedness, carefully measured and ever-cautious optimism, a firm conviction that even in the worst of times, maybe especially in the worst of times, it's essential that we find a way to look away now and then and have a laugh. He also has an irrepressible, firmly grounded sense of, dare I say it, hope. So kick off your shoes, crack a cold one, rev up the vape pen, or pack the biggest bowl you own, and settle in for the first part of my epic Apocalypse Now-style trip upriver with Tom Nichols, who may be hopeful that this war marks the beginning of the end for Putin and Putinism, but who is still too smart and too honest to try to convince you that what lies ahead for Ukraine and Russia, for Europe, China and America, and yes, for all of us, isn't a really hairy and most definitely world historical stretch of Hell and I Water. This was my dog. This was my car. 
This was my job. And this was my father. And this was my daughter. The millions and millions of fresh wounds are bleeding with that wounds. Russia has drowned Ukraine in tears and blood and children corpses. But there is one thing Russia doesn't get. Was is the word that describes its life. And we Ukrainians already know what will come next. We will win. So there he is, President Zelensky, the new global icon of our time, Tom, and with a new fresh Sunday Twitter video in English for all of us who don't speak either Ukrainian or Russian. How are you? Good to see you, by the way. Yeah, good to see you, John. Thanks for having me. So I want to ask you just, you know, to place this in context, right? When we all want to talk more about Zelensky as we go, but just this video, which is defiant, and also just, I mean, the language in this thing, like the guy is like, you know, the, the driven Ukraine into tears and blood and shoot up corpses. Like, I'm powerful, just as his speech to Congress was. But I ask you, everything you, you read right now today on Sunday is stalemate, you know, protracted stalemate, quagmire. That's where we're headed for. It could be longer or shorter, but it's going to be an ugly thing. And that's really what we're seeing in a lot of these cities in Ukraine. So when you hear Zelensky say, we will win, is that bravado or is that rooted in some possibility of reality? And what's the state against the backdrop of what you think the state of the war is right now? I don't want to parse this as, you know, depends on what the definition of win is, but it's pretty clear that Putin's strategic objectives aren't going to happen. So whatever Putin thought he was going to get by going into this war, like capturing Kiev, regime change, turning Ukraine into like the 19th province of Russia kind of thing, it's not going to happen. So, you know, can Putin keep leveling buildings and killing people? Yes. You know, when Zelensky says Ukraine will win, it's not like he's going to march into Red Square and hand over, you know, the instrument of surrender. But is Putin ever going to get what he thought he was going to get the day he launched this war? And I think the answer is no. And that's what Zelensky's saying, is that Ukraine will win. Because there's still going to be a sovereign Ukraine. They're not going to occupy Kiev. They're not going to... I mean, it's just Ukraine in some sense, without sounding overly enamored of bravado myself, in some sense, that Russia has already lost this war. Right. When I was in Estonia, not that long ago, talking to the Secretary of State and others around him, and I won't reveal off-the-record conversations here, but there's a pervasive sense among a lot of people in the American foreign policy world that, that the problem is Russia will not take over Ukraine, may not even be able to capture Kiev, but the Ukrainians will never be strong enough to drive Russia out. That's what leads to some of the stalemate analysis, like there's a the sort of micro stalemate analysis of, you know, resupply lines and all this stuff. But the general sense of, hey, the Russians haven't accomplished their strategic objectives or their tactical ones, as you said, but they can last for a long time as long as Putin yeah. just keeps shoving bodies into the fire and treating every Russian conscript as cannon fodder. They could stay there for a very long time. That's a war that nobody wins potentially, right? Right. And the other thing that the Russians have a lot of and that they love dearly is artillery. And they can just keep dumping artillery on innocent people until they're just bouncing the rubble around. But there is a danger of an unintended consequence here. I mean, that's what happened in the eastern provinces in Ukraine. Well, that was eight years ago, and it's been just going on and going on and, you know, the killing. But that's also created, as we now see, a battle-experienced Ukrainian military. Right. You know, the, the pushover military that Putin thought he was dealing with 
ironically, you know, Putin created this military. Putin created this country that he's now at war with that he might have to just keep pounding. Because the other thing to be careful about saying, because I think people throw this around, they say, well, Ru you know, Russia holds this area or they hold that area. Almost inevitably, what that means is they happen to be standing in that area at this moment. <laughs> it's like I hold my office right now, but if someone showed up, if someone showed up here with enough artillery, I'd probably have to leave. You know? yeah, right. If we were yeah. walking down, you know, Fifth Avenue at three in the morning and there was no traffic, we could say, "Hey, we're holding Midtown right now." Yeah, right, but, you know, right, we're right. not. Yeah. I mean, if the reports of the Russian losses are even remotely accurate, the ones that you know the Pentagon's putting out. Well, let's say fourteen thousand is right. That's what the Ukrainian government's claiming, and that's what the Red Cross is getting ready to carry out of the country. I believe, if according to the news last week. Cut that in half to make it the Pentagon's estimate, and that's still catastrophic. Right. Here's my thing. Like, we all want to root for Zelensky. We all are rooting for Zelensky. Everybody is, right? I mean, there's no, again, we'll talk a little more about him in a second, but my question is, if you have Putin deciding that he doesn't care in the end about casualty numbers, and he doesn't care about the state of the economy, I mean, and this is the view of a lot of very pessimistic, cold-eyed Russia watchers. I'm Michael McFall. I did an interview with Masha Gessen on Friday. He doesn't give a shit. He doesn't care. He's a classic totalitarian. He doesn't mind depopulation. It's okay, right? That's the Hannah Arendt definition of totalitarian. You gotta be okay with depopulation of your own country. And if that's right, if Ukraine is locked in a brave struggle that lasts months of shelling, losing thousands and tens of thousands, and then maybe hundreds of thousands of lives is one definition of loss. If you can't get them out and they're willing to basically take any cost you could be in a situation where you're just stuck in this endless quagmire where your ability to absorb those losses eventually becomes intolerable just because too many people are dying and fleeing. Right. That's why I didn't want to get into any kind of parsing about win or loss, because right. I think a better way to ask that, because you initially said years or maybe months, whose side is time on really? Yeah. I'm not going to quite agree that Putin has no limits in terms of the losses he can take. If he really didn't give a shit about public opinion, he wouldn't be at one of these stupid, you know, <laughs> neo-fascist rallies with everything done up in, you know, the Russian tricolor. I think you made a Trump rally, Tom. That looked like a Trump rally to me. <laughs> yeah. If he really didn't give a shit, he wouldn't be doing those. Yeah. You know, he's got something like 15,000 people in detention right now. Right. People are fighting. I don't know if you saw the video of, you know, old ladies fighting over bags of sugar. Yeah. You know, that can't go on forever either. Even the Soviet Union, which had a lot more control over its population than Putin does, even the Soviet Union couldn't risk that kind of level of discontent. And when those body bags, well, they are coming home. And when more body bags start coming home, Putin has a problem. Of course, he can just say, fine, I'll stay in power and I'll, I'll crack heads and I'll put people in jail. But he is unwinding a system that had come to depend on the international system in a way that the old Soviet Union didn't. You know, when you were getting body bags coming home from Afghanistan, you didn't right. care about things like sanctions. You didn't right. care whether the Russian stock market would ever open again because it didn't exist. So he does have to live somewhat in the real world. But I also agree with you that the guy's just a murderer. I mean, he will throw Russian boys into this thing like a meat grinder but I think, you know, we're all struggling with, and then what? Right. Yes. Yes. You know, yeah. what does he get out of it? The biggest problem I'm having is that every Russia head that I talk to, regardless of politics, you know, we all kind of check notes and talk with each other. And none of us can answer the question of how this ends. Right. And it's funny because, you know, 
you don't want to be the person who's always skipping to the end game, you know, in these situations, especially when thousands of people are dying and you're watching these images. You want to, I mean, you don't want to live in the moment, but you want to kind of be respectful of the moment and not be just kind of kind of trying to do these war right. games that are speculative right. and who the fuck knows, right? But it is obviously everybody wants it to end. And so the question of what the end is, it kind of presents itself. Here's a question, skipping ahead to where I wanted to ask about this. It's right in front of us here. And then I'll, I will shift and talk about the three big dramatis personae in this conflict. But in my conversation with Masha Gessen the other day, they made a point that others have made, including the prime minister of uh, Estonia, who I met when I was in Estonia. It was like, okay, so here's a scenario where Putin wins. Eventually, he's, they super peace. They make a deal with Zelensky. They partition the country. He gets to keep some land. He gets them to agree to some kind of at least partial demilitarization and a pledge to not join NATO. And he goes home and says, I won. Thank you. And then hangs out until Trump or some other more pro-Russian president who wants to get America out of NATO gets reelected. Now, I'm not saying Trump will get reelected, but I'm saying from Putin's standpoint, it's not an implausible, crazy scenario to imagine those things all happening. And, and Putin going back in a, in a place where he's repressed the dissent and the press and where the country doesn't largely know exactly how many Russians have died and the soldiers can't take cell phones with them into the field anymore. And there's just disappeared Russian boys all over the place. He goes back and says, yeah, we lost a few thousand, but we secured a lot of eastern Ukraine, which we always wanted to do. And we kept them out of NATO. Now the sanctions go away. And I hunker down and hope for a better, more conciliatory and conducive attitude towards me in the West, which we know at least one major presidential candidate has. Yeah. It's interesting because there's separate audiences here. One is if he takes that deal, that's basically a loss to the crazy kind of right wingers in Russia that have been pushing this that are his closest advisors now. And one thing you've heard me say this before, I mean, one, one reason I'm very sensitive about this is I'm an Orthodox Christian, and I think people in the West are not paying attention to how much of this is being driven by this kind of crackpot messianic Russian orthodoxy that the yeah, patriarchate right. of Moscow is pushing. So Putin just comes home and says, all right, you know, the LDR and the DPR, you know, it's secured and they're not going to join NATO. I mean, to take a Blues Brothers line, he thinks he's on a mission from God. And that's pretty scary. On the other hand, he may have to just say, I've got to define something as a win and come back for another bite another day down the road. But here's the thing. He's doing so much damage to his own military that there is a kind of capacity problem here. I know a lot of people are really fearing that if we don't stop him this time, he partitions part of Ukraine. He kind of sits on that. He builds up his muscle again. And then it's like Stalin said at the end of World War II, Stalin was standing in front of a map of Europe and he said, the Germans will recover. And then 15 years from now, we'll have another go at it. I right. don't think Putin can do that. I think this is it. I think the high watermark of Russian power passed a month ago, and you're right. never going to see a Russia that powerful and capable again. I think, if anything, Putin might be in some kind of an existential funk because somewhere inside he realizes how completely badly he has screwed the pooch here. So I don't want to give away Ukraine. I don't want to advise Zelensky. Right. I think it is incredibly presumptuous for us Westerners to sit here and say, you know what, you know, the deal Zelensky ought to take because, you know, that's easy for us because we're not sitting in a bunker somewhere. Yeah. But I also think that Zelensky has more room to accept bad deals because I don't think those bad deals are going to last because I don't think this regime's going to last. And I certainly don't think Putin's going to last because I think part of what drove this is he has some 
and I'm guessing at this, I don't have any inside info on the guy's health or what, but it seems to me like this was the end result of the world's worst midlife crisis of some kind. And that he just decided <laughs> this is the moment. So they should have bought the fucking guy a Porsche, you know, just like to say, you know, he already got the young girlfriend. I He's know. got the yeah, $30,000 watches. And I mean, you know, I guess for the man who finally has the big midlife crisis, he's got to go get a, another country and add it to his belt. But, but I think there is some of that. If you have all the money in the world and all the power in the world and you run a mafia state, basically, you're not even an oligarchic, but a kleptocratic state like that. And you look around, you have all the cars and you have the watches and you have the girls. What else is there? You know, another, 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 another country, guy's territory. another country. Let's go, let's get another guy's territory. So let me ask you about Zelensky. Like I said, I want to talk about Zelensky and about Biden. And we've talked about Putin a little bit. But let's talk about Zelensky because really it's quite weak. You know, the guy went and, and spoke to the Canadian government. He went to spoke to the German government. Of course, most importantly, from his point of view and the world's, he virtually beamed himself into Congress. And I, I want to play just a little bit of that for history. Today, the Ukrainian people are defending not only Ukraine. We are fighting for the values of Europe and the world, sacrificing our lives in the name of the future. I'm addressing the President Biden. You are the leader of the nation, of your great nation. I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Thank you. Slava Ukraine. I don't like to gush. You know, I'm not a big gusher, Tom. But, you know, I've been just stunned by the whole thing. The speech is great. 16 minutes, super tight, part in Ukrainian, part in English with the video in the middle that had people in tears, right? Yeah, you can't amazing. watch it more. You can't watch it more than once without being like, okay, I've seen it once. I don't really want to see that again, right. right? All new things out of the bag of tricks. And this guy's bag of tricks as a wartime leader and a modern media figure has been inexhaustible. I've never seen anything quite like it. Someone who's gone from total anonymity 0.1% of the world knew who the guy was, could have picked him out of the lineup. And did a and the, bad and, way. The people who knew, they yes. knew because of the Trump thing. Right. Or thought he was kind of a clown or a, a kind of uh, in over his head. You know, a lot of the cognoscenti had that view. And now it's like he's really the third, you know, along with Putin and Biden, who everyone in the world knows who the US president is. He's like one of the three most well-known political leaders and leaders in the world. He's a little bit of a combination of like Nelson Mandela and Che Guevara. I mean, he's going to be on t-shirts. We're going to have that moment where people used to, you remember, we're old enough to remember when Che was on t-shirts. People didn't know what that was for. He was a good-looking guy in a beret who looked a little like Jesus and was kind of radical and revolutionary in some way. No one knew what he really did. But that's the way Zelensky is now. People call him Churchillian, right? And they say it seriously. And it's across party and it's across classes. And he's done it in three weeks. Yeah. You know, for almost four now, right? And first of all, just tell me about what you thought of the speech and then what you think about the broader phenomenon of like how this happened. Listen, I'm one of those people that said the guy's in over his head because after he was elected, he kind of was in over his head. I mean, the kind of day to day running of a big, complicated government was. Um, like Jackie Mason had a great joke about Ronald Reagan back in the day. He said he's a great president. He's just politics isn't his field. Zelensky had this kind of great presence as an actor and as a national figure. But, you know, what's been really interesting is war and tribulation and hardship reveal character. 
They're the acid test of character. And under this acid test, Putin has gotten smaller and smaller and withdrawn. And, you know, that's why I think they're pushing him out in front of crowds. And Zelensky has emerged as this guy who is just fearless, who has balls of steel walking around Kiev, you know, when there's teams out to whack him. I think it's a very simple issue of, you know, the guy has the heart that everybody thinks he has now. And you don't see that. I'm going back to this question of how did he get underestimated? You don't see this kind of courage or heart when you see a guy basically like trying to reform his interior ministry or right. figure out, you know, tax rates. It took sure. a crisis like this to say, what is this person made of? And it turns out the guy is just made of really strong stuff. Now, the other thing, going back to the information war, because I've been, my mind's been blown by this too, you know, I think this is what happens when you have a free, young, democratic cohort of people and you say to them, kind of unleash your creativity. Whereas Putin's information warfare is people that are scared shitless of the government that they work for, of the country they live in. And that doesn't produce very good propaganda. What you get in that case is, you know, well, good crackdown, good crackdowns, they're good at crackdowns. But, you know, but if, if you turn to them and say, now do something inspiring that puts yeah. people on our side during this war, the best they can come up with is um, uh, Nazis, you know, like they go to the off the shelf villains. And I think it shows you that democracies when they're with young, creative people putting out their message do a lot better than decrepit autocracies, just like we were better well, at this than the Soviets were. I think it's obviously clear that. The first element of what makes the situation different is Putin's role in the world. You know, we can both remember when there were guys like Chernyenko and Andropov and no one, even American, even who they were. A lot of people know who Brezhnev was, right? right? The only Russian leader who was ever like this, Putin, on the other side of the coin was Gorbachev, right? Who became the positive version of like a global superstar because of the end of the Soviet Union, right? And Putin took on the, like, wears the black hat with pride, right? He's not like Paul Pot or Idi Amin, who's like, hey, I'm a good, respectable leader of my country. I'm killing a bunch of people. Don't look at that. Putin's like, hey, I'm Darth Vader. I am happy to be the global supervillain, and I'll go mess in an American election. So I become part of the vernacular. He's one step away from, like, wearing Mao jackets like Blofeld or something. Right, right. So he's a global supervillain. So if you get a Darth Vader, it gives you an opportunity for a Luke Skywalker. How do you be Luke Skywalker? You got to be brave. You got to do the stuff. You can't just, it's not an image manipulation thing. If you're not being brave and resolute and courageous and smart and surviving, you can't be that. But there's also this thing that those guys have done, the people around Zelensky and Zelensky himself, and you could see it in that speech to Congress. You could see it in the speech with the Twitter video. Everybody says this war is the first TikTok war and it's the first one with social media. They were like, we get that. We play high media. We do the Lester Holt interview. We do the speech to Congress. We play low. We're on TikTok. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We speak in Russian. We speak in Ukrainian. We speak in, in English. We're on Telegram all day long. The guy, like, he's like spamming me. There's so many videos. He's ubiquitous, elite, and populist. He's playing at every level of the game in a way, almost like oh, the only I, people will kill me for saying this, but in this element only, not in terms of quality or normative values. You're going to say of Trump. He's got a little Trump in it. Yeah. I mean, that's what Trump did. That's what Trump did when he was the underdog running for president. Oh, was, yeah. I'll go everywhere. I'll talk to anyone. I'll do anything. I'll be on all media. I'll just be in your face all the right. time. You know, but you know, what's interesting, John, as a longtime, you know, Putin watcher and, and you know, Kremlin, I don't know, I guess, what am I, yeah. Kremlinologist. You know, the Putin and his team used to be really good at this. 
Mm. You know, I'm talking even before the bear shirt, you know, wrestling the bears and playing hockey and all that crap. They used to do some really smart stuff that said, this guy is not a Stalin. He's not a supervillain. He's just a really tough leader. And said they had these great kind of framing and they would put him in the right kind of videos. But something happened. And I think that thing that happened is a cult of personality. You know, if we want to keep making the Trump comparisons, this is where Putin and Trump became alike, that when you have a cult of personality, the information stuff you put out gets cheesier and cheesier because the team working on it is more and more afraid. The kind of arena in which they can act gets narrower and narrower. I mean, I used to be really impressed going over and watching Russian television they had very fast paced shows and everybody was standing behind podiums and, you know, a lot of give and take and and it at least mimicked democratic debate, but there was a lot of real debate. Now, every single thing on Russian TV looks like the stupidest goddamn game show in history. It's all like some crazy version of who wants to be a millionaire or a Nickelodeon kids show. Because as Putin became more and more of a dictator, they realized that there just wasn't room to do that. And the people that weren't totally on board left. So the only people left doing this stuff on the information side in Russia are, you know, these people like Simonyan at RT, and they're just not great at it. They used to have people that were better at it. And I think Zelensky's people totally understood, as you say, they get it. They understand that to mobilize support in the world, op-eds in the New York Times aren't going to do it anymore. Right. Well, and the other thing is, and again, I don't want to overstretch the Trump thing because I'll just say for everybody who's listening, I'm not saying Zelensky's like Trump morally, politically, in terms of valor or anything else. You're just, just, just waiting really for clear. that cancel I'm, avalanche. I'm talking, I'm talking about I'm talking just about media savvy, and no one can deny that Trump was media savvy. The fact is that like when Trump put that red hat on, we all thought he was a fucking clown. Like make America great again, that's a douchey thing to no one's gonna like that. He was like, No, 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 I'm gonna trademark this, I'm gonna sell millions of these hats, and it's gonna be gauche. A lot of people are gauche out there in the world. I'll do this populist, like basically a trucker hat. And here comes Zelensky in his green T-shirt. Yep. And he wears it everywhere. Yep. And, you know, he's not served in the military, to my knowledge. It's an affectation. It is. It's like as much of an affectation as Steve Jobs' black turtlenecks. Steve Jobs used to say he wore those because he wanted to save time in the morning so he wouldn't have to choose to make any decisions about what to wear. It was an affectation. It was about branding. Right. Consistency and ubiquity. That was Trump. Consistency, ubiquity, and no fear of going into the really hokey. And Zelensky has basically been like, that's what I got to do to win, be the what I need to be here to lead my country and keep my people alive. And do the counterfactual, right? Imagine if Zelensky had done those things like with the Congress or the Canadian Parliament, and he somebody had got him a nice, you know, pulled out a nice Savile Row suit, and they'd put a silk tie, and everybody'd say, no. well, I guess things aren't that bad. Yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, no. I'm sorry. I thought you were in a bunker, but apparently you brought your tailor with you. No, um, no. He, what he did. <laughs> was you know was smart smart also i think it's authentic i think that is how he's I walking around all day the only things that work are the ones that, that are authentic if you're faking it you can't make it but i think it's just i mean i heard people on twitter they were like he should have worn a suit oh, i'm like man. Are you fucking crazy it would have been the biggest mistake he ever made people would have thought what a fraud what a fraud they would have said yeah Whoever told him to wear a suit, you got to wonder, it's like, whose side are you on, man? Because telling him to wear a suit is really like the worst advice you could give him. So there's that. I'll just want to play one quick thing because I think it's hilarious. This is how you know that you're in a weird moment. A weird moment, you, you have somehow transcended something when you give a speech to a joint session of Congress and you hear Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell talking like this. President Zelensky's courage and leadership have earned the attention and the admiration of the entire free world. 
The president's fearless, heroic leadership has rallied his nation and inspired the entire world. This presentation was powerful and heart-wrenching. It reinforced our sympathy, our outrage, and our resolve. And our members were very moved by his powerful remarks today, as well as the heart-wrenching footage he shared showing Putin's inhumane terror brutally committing war crimes against children. I read those speeches. It was like as if for one day, yeah. the same speechwriter was writing for Nancy Pelosi and, and Mitch McConnell. It doesn't really happen all that often. Tom, I, that's something I've never really well, seen it's, before. It's like a conversation I was having the other day with somebody about how for just an hour or two, Marco Rubio came out of his Trump zombie trance and actually started talking like a real senator for about 10 minutes. Yeah. You know, you're seeing this with a lot of folks. And I think... It's almost like you could believe for a moment that Mitch McConnell cares about something <laughs> because there are no Ukrainians in, you know, it's not a big Ukrainian <laughs> population in Kentucky. And so he didn't risk the kind of unforced error that J.D. Vance brought on himself that, you know, yeah. slagging the Ukrainians. I think, look, there is a generation of people. I'm one of them. You we remember the Cold War. This is the Cold War nightmare. This is exactly the one thing we could always agree on is that we didn't want to see the Russian army trying to steamroll its way west. And Putin said, I'm going to do it anyway. And I think there is a legitimate kind of visceral reaction. I think, by the way, this is part of the reason that Putin made such a strategic blunder because I think he said, well, they didn't care if I took Crimea. They didn't care if I beat up on Georgia. They didn't care, you know, that I was helping Assad drop bombs on people. They won't care about this. And like so many other Russian leaders in the past just didn't understand that at some point the West hits a line where they say, no, we actually care about this. Now, what, you know, we're not going to go to war over it or not go to war over it yet. He didn't understand that at some point and the Soviets made this same mistake with Afghanistan, right? They said they didn't care about Budapest. They didn't care about Prague. They won't care about Kabul. And yet we cared about Kabul and for years helped to make Afghanistan the graveyard of Soviet power. And I think Putin has made that same mistake. There's something in the water. I said this the other day. It's almost like there's something in the water that makes people in the Kremlin stupid over time. That, because they, they sabotage themselves when they're winning. The Soviets did this to themselves in the 70s. They were beating us on points, if nothing else. And then again with Putin. If Putin hadn't done this... Imagine the problem we'd be dealing with of looking at this long-term emergence of Russian power, the Russo-Chinese, you know, axis that everybody worried about. And instead, he has just dashed his military and his economy to bits over this on the assumption that people like McConnell and Pelosi couldn't possibly have a moment like that and then vote to send weapons to Ukraine. So listen, Tom, I want to ask you one last question about Putin before we move on. There's this long-running debate, you know, about sort of the state of Putin's mental stability, right? And, you know, I, I've seen you do battle with people over the question of the misuse of the term rational actor, which is, you know, a, an academic thing that relates to states and not humans. And I'm enough of an academic, or at least I have enough memory of having been in, in, in graduate school that I will not make that mistake. I will not allow you to then poke holes in my use of the phrase rational actor. We're talking here, but we are talking about rationality. We're talking about, about this guy and what constitutes rationality. And, you know, even, even people with extreme delusions 
people who have extreme mental disorders, they still often have, you know, an internal logic to what they think. They don't necessarily think the mood's made of green cheese or that gravity like doesn't work or the sun's going to rise in the West. I mean, that's like you're out of your fucking mind if you think those things. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, you know, someone who has, you know, I think it's Mike McFall, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, who says that, you know, it's not that Putin's irrational. He just doesn't think like you. You know, he doesn't share your sense of what rationality is. He has a different frame of reference. He has different objectives. He has different historical perspective. He has different cultural perspective. You can't understand his rationality because it's so different from yours. But it's not that he's irrational. And that, I think, is a powerful point. And I think, it, I, again, it's kind of the view that I have had. But I want to ask you this, though, because, you know, Putin's reaction to Zelensky's speech last week, that seemed a little different to me. You know, not like this guy's got his own compass and it's not my compass. His true north is not my true north. It seemed more genuinely unhinged. You know, the, the language was you know, really wild. And he's going after, you know, about his own people. He's going after the oligarchs, some of the people who, you know, he helped make rich, who he put into positions of power and has made really wealthy. You know, he's talking about, you know, the the decadence of foie gras and oysters and gender freedom uh, and how these Russians are enjoying all those things. And the, the concept is about insects and kind of fifth column and, and the traders and all the stuff that he talked about. There was just a different quality to it. And it felt a little more to me like Nixon in 74, right? You know, in the midst of Watergate, drunkenly wandering around the White House, talking to the paintings on the walls, you know, I guess it raised the question, at least for me, is that where, where Putin is now? Or is there a chance that that where Putin is now? Like like Nixon, he's wandering around the Kremlin, drunk on vodka instead of red wine, talking to the paintings on the walls. And, and if that's true, you know, what does that mean? Despite my totally natural inclination to be overly pedantic, um, <laughs> there is a good question about rationality here because as you say, when people say, well, he's irrational, it means they're like full goose bozo, you know, talking to the cat and yelling at paintings and all that stuff. But there is a, a bigger problem of rationality. And, you know, Mike McFall often uses the term unhinged. And I think that's a good way to put it, that Putin has always been a highly emotional guy. I don't understand how years of watching this led other people to say, he's a cool customer. You know, he never loses his cool. He loses his cool all the time. It shows. He would suck at poker. I mean, you always know when he's angry because he can barely hold it back. My concern about his rational state of mind and this is one thing you always see with leaders who become irrational, but not crazy. And they start to have problems processing information. Right. They become yep. delusional. They go into denial. Was Hitler crazy? You know, was Hitler rational? He had war aims. He pursued them. You know, he could sit through planning. But when they finally told him, look, Stalingrad isn't going to hold, he just said, no, I don't believe you. I told this story on Twitter the other day. There's a bit in Anthony Beaver's History of Stalingrad where they were so desperate to snap him out of this, they literally pulled a guy out of the trenches, a captain, covered in like lice and mud and his own shit from living in a trench. And they put him in, in a plane and fly him to Berlin and march him into the Fuhrer's office because he's like, I want a status report. And they said, okay, here's captain, deliver your status report. And he just didn't want to believe it. Saddam Hussein, the allies are crossing the line of departure. No, they're not. The French and the Russians are going to save us. But, sir, they are literally in the country. No, they're not. You know? So now, I, I'm, I mean, Putin, I think, and th this is why he's arresting guys at the FSB, and there has been this giant, you know, kind of shitstorm inside the Kremlin. He thinks he understands Ukraine. Who's the top Ukrainian expert in the Kremlin? 
Putin thinks it's him. And people are trying to say to him, well, it's not going so well. And he's like, no, you know, this is going to happen this way. And I worry about that with a guy who's in command of a big army and nuclear weapons. So is he crazy? No. Is he suicidal? No, I don't think so. Can he convince himself that there are options he has here that will work that are really dangerously stupid? Yes. Because yeah. that's how his mind is working now. 100%. And somebody pointed out to me the other day, there was a book written about Putin to kind of introduce him to the public a long time ago called like First Person or something. He likes to tell stories about himself about being vengeful and reckless. It's like, he's not just not a cool customer. He likes to boast about yeah. not being a cool he's customer. He's John Gotti. Some, yes, the right. The person he most right. resembles, and I, t- I say this to my wife all the time, I'm like, this is John Gotti. You know, look at me. I'm wearing the expensive clothes. I'm bulletproof. The press, you know, I can swan into these events and control the agenda. People are afraid of me. But, you know, there's a reason. I was thinking about this earlier when you were talking about, you know, the Russian position kind of unraveling. There's a reason that at one point you would have said, hey, Gotti is indestructible. Sammy the Bull is never going to roll on this guy. And then, boom, you know, Sammy and the other guys finally say, you know, our interests aren't served here anymore. And suddenly, right. I mean, would you have ever thought, those of us that, you know, love true crime stories, I mean, the day they said, Sammy the Bull is going to roll on Gotti, I was like, that could never happen. But I think that is, you know, part of the problem of his personality. Whether anybody rolls on him, that's a different question. I'm going to come back to the Biden question a little later, because what's interesting about Zelensky and Putin is that both of their games are in some ways kind of simple. It's like Zelensky's basically like, I got to try to save my country. I got to rally public support. Please help us. You know, like very simple messaging. It's not a lot of subtlety to that, nor should there be as people are dying in, in large numbers. You know, Putin's is also pretty straightforward, not in terms of like the long term objectives, but right now it's you know, crack down on dissent. Don't let people figure out what the fuck's going on because the one thing, the whole West is basically united around the notion that we can undermine it. If we, if we bring enough economic pain, enough moral sanction, and there are enough casualties, eventually the struts will fall out from underneath the old regime. So Putin's basically like, not if I can just make sure no one knows what's happening. Or the other thing Putin's game is, is yeah, you can do all that stuff, but I am so large and in charge and in control that there is nothing you can do that's going to change any of that And I've got the rallies and the crazy speeches to prove it. And Biden's situation is much, much more complex. So we'll turn to that a little later. Uh, But first, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Tom Nichols on Hell and High Water. So you think of yourself as a recount super fan. You're a big news buff. You wake up every day with our daily newsletter or you gorge on our Twitter feed. Either way, we've got a new show just for you. Premiering Wednesday, March 30th at 4 p.m. on Twitch, recount.co slash Twitch. The show is called Chatterbrain, the news game show. It's a show that will test three contestants on their knowledge of current events and other trivia. One winning contestant will take on the wisdom of crowds, the Twitch chat room in the final round. Host Slade Sommer, the Recount's editor-in-chief, picks the topics from the Recount's treasure trove of stories and insights to create this first-of-its-kind news game show. So get reading. Everyone can play along in the Twitch chat for fun, but come round three of the game, you chat-goers will go head-to-head to beat the last standing contestant. You'll laugh, you'll cheer, you'll catch up on the news. doesn't matter if you get a question wrong, you will definitely learn something, and that's what it's all about. Tune in to Chatterbrain on Wednesday, March 30th at 4 p.m. ET. To flaunt your news knowledge, find us on Twitch at recount.co backslash Twitch. 
Welcome back to Hell and High Water. So I want to talk a little bit about you, Tom, because as I sit here listening to you, talking about you've called yourself a Kremlinologist, you could talk about how you talk to Russia heads. Well, I was familiar with your academic credentials and some of your scholarship and some of your writing, but I was amazed to go back and just look at the bibliography and how fully built for this moment you are. Like for most people who know you from Twitter or from television, they, they know you wrote a book called Our Own Worst Enemy, which is really about America, the assault from within on modern democracy. That was last year it came out. And the one before that was The Death of Expertise, the campaign against established knowledge and why it matters. But before that, you've got no use about nuclear weapons and US national security. That's the subtitle. Eve of Destruction, The Coming Age of Preventative War, Winning the World, Lessons for America's Future in the, from the Cold War, The Russian Presidency, Society and Politics of the Second Russian Republic, and the first book, The Sacred Cause, Civil Military Conflict over Soviet National Security, 1917-1992. You're the perfect, you're the perfect <laughs> flower of this perfect moment, basically, right? With one exception, and this is where I have to own this, when I wrote The Rus Russian Presidency, I wrote it while Yeltsin was president, and just as it went to press, he handed it over to Putin. And I said, well, you know, I was one of those guys for that first year or two saying, this Putin guy, he's not going to be so bad. <laughs> right. You know, and I think it's really important for people to understand this. The things Putin and his team were doing around, you know, 2000, 2001, they were doing things like shoring up the relationship between Moscow and the federal units in Russia. Right. They were right. reforming the Russian courts, which actually needed it. I mean, he was doing things where a lot of Russia heads were looking at him saying, you know, that's actually a good idea. Somebody needed to do that. That's been on the must-do list. And even as late as 2006, 2007, he's giving interviews by saying, listen, nobody wants the old Soviet Union back. You know, I grieve it. It was a terrible thing to happen, but we're never going to try and impose a foreign government on Ukraine. He literally says in 2007, we're never going to attack Ukraine. You can't impose a government on other people. You know, we're all part of the same, you know, family here. And, you know, there's always been this debate among the Kremlinologists about, was Putin always this evil? And I'm starting to come to the conclusion that yes, he was, but hit it better. Or did he change? And I think the answer is a little bit of both because I think power and isolation and sycophancy, and particularly this thing with the Russian priests, that was a rumor I picked up and I didn't have any special knowledge, anybody paid attention was hearing these stories, that he was increasingly getting surrounded by this very right-wing clack of, you know, right. priests and cultural figures. And so I think the Putin, you know, I think the guy that was elected legitimately in that first go-around was a gangster because everybody in Russia to survive in those days had a little bit of a gangster in them. And he was a pretty tough right. guy from Leningrad. But then he turned into something else. And by 2008, when he said, I'm just going to be president forever. So it's almost like I've kind of had this terrible sense that something's going to go wrong. You know, the natural pessimism of the guy who studies international relations. But that's the one I got wrong. That was the call where I think my optimism in the 90s got the better of me. Now, there are a lot of impressive realities about the Nichols resume, you know, for, I mean, obviously the United States Naval War College stint from 1997 to 2022, a big deal, you know, boards of advisors and senior associates and senior fellows and professorships and, you know, all the stuff you've done. But there's nothing more impressive than the, I still think would say for most people, little known fact that Tom Nichols was a Jeopardy champion and... I want to play a little bit of uh, what, I thought, what I imagine is like the thing you're proudest of in your entire life, which is not just a Jeopardy champion, Tom, but a, but a five-time Jeopardy champion. And so let us venture back to 1994 
and hear a little bit of that. Our returning champion is averaging over $12,000 for each of his two wins. He's a good player, but he may be in some trouble today because I overheard Jeff, one of the challengers, lean over to Judy just before they came out here and say something like, it's time someone beat this guy. <laughs> so Tom, you are warned. Rebecca is like, you know, he's basically like, this dude's a stud, but they're coming after you, Tom. Yeah. And I, I just crushed those two folks the minute he said that, which was really fun. Let us now venture further into our trove of audio. And I, I want to say everybody who knows me knows that I hate acknowledging anything positive about Tom Nichols. <laughs> uh, and, we'll, and we'll get to some of the critique a little later. But let's play a little bit of Tom Nichols showing his mastery of Jeopardy here. Tom, where do we begin? Colleges and universities for 100, please, Alex. This university near South Bend, Indiana, is run by the Congregation of Holy Cross. Tom. What is Notre Dame? Yes. Colleges and universities, 200, please. It's the oldest member of the Ivy League. Tom. What is Harvard? Right. Colleges and universities, 300, please. Victoria University of Wellington is one of the six universities run by this nation's government. Tom. What is New Zealand? Yes. Colleges and universities, 400, please. This European university's three oldest colleges are University, Balliol, and Merton. Tom? Uh, what is Oxford? Correct. Colleges and universities, 500, please. In 1924, Trinity College of Durham, North Carolina, changed its name to this. Tom? What is Duke? Yes. Five in a row for Tom. So it's pretty impressive, except for the fact that you lucked out and got this category, which was right in your wheelhouse. I mean, That's how it the goes, guy who man. is uh, who's got a degree from Boston University, a degree from Columbia University, a degree from Georgetown University, and has taught in all kinds of places. It happens to get colleges and universities. Talk about like lucking out on the topic. It's like Cliff Clavin getting the Postal Service as a category. I mean, um, but you know, it's there's a humbling thing about Jeopardy, which is that no matter what else, I mean, it is wonderful that people always love it. But there is this moment, and it just happened. I was just down doing a talk in, in Florida, right? And people say, Tom Nichols, and he has a PhD, and he's written eight books, and he's done this, and he's done that. And everybody kind of nods and goes, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then they say, and he won on Jeopardy. And everybody goes, okay, now, now we'll take him serious. Like, oh, you right. can do anything else in your life. And the moment that really brought this home to me was that just after that show had aired, I was teaching at Dartmouth College. I was a young professor. I was, you know even more full of myself then than I am now, John, if that could possibly even happen. Unfathomable. Unfathomable. A, a student really took me down multiple pegs. He walks up to me, he says, hey, Professor Nichols, I saw you on Jeopardy last night. And I said, yeah, what'd you think? He said, I had no idea you were so smart. Right. I was like, oh, man, <laughs> man. I, dude, I'm your professor. He's like, yeah, but you know. And so it really does kind of take you down a peg to realize that, yeah, you can do a whole bunch of other things, but until you do it on TV, it's not real. Now, just just before we let the impression go that like five-time Jeopardy champion, there's some story about how they had to bring you back when you lost because yes. you had actually gotten an answer right that they yes. had to admit later. That, that's not, that is the, the worst possible thing for the inflation of your ego. It's like, oh, fuck, he lost. <laughs> but we realize now we were wrong. It's the worst. But before anybody gets the impression that Tom is infallible, he does not always get the questions right on Jeopardy. And here's one that may cause you to question. Oh, slightly no. Some of, what some, did you some, do? Some, some of his current expertise, because, you know, you'd think this is another category that should be right up his alley, but apparently not. Uh, world capital's a thousand. Answer there. Ships once paid a toll at Helsingor before proceeding to this capital 25 miles to the south. Tom. Was Helsinki. No. The capital to the south was Copenhagen. So, like, world capitals is the one you fucked up? 
I mean, come on, dude. Listen, if you're, you're gonna, like- if you're gonna if you're gonna slag me, I'm gonna even give you the material to do it with. Because in the tournament of champions, now everybody on Twitter knows I am Greek American. I'm part Greek, mm. part Irish. I speak yeah. Greek, went to Greece, all that stuff. Yeah. What did I blow the question on in the tournament of champions? The last king of Greece. And I got her. I literally was going to church. I was going to church, and the, like the little ladies in black walking up to me, saying, "Tommy, how you not know this is kind? Of, you're so stupid. You know, you're Greek. You not know this." And I'm like, "Oh my god, I got to get yelled at for the next ten years in church." It happens. I mean, your brain freezes, and you stand there going, "I knew that." Yeah, it's a terrifying experience sometimes to go on Jeopardy, because that's it, right? You say, "Boy, this is the moment where I can really show people I'm really smart," or I will have a moment like this, like when your friends, you know, thirty years later, dog you with the one thing you got wrong. So, thank you, John. I really appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, World Capital is like, you know, I know. Uh, I, I heard Helsingfors, and I thought. It sounded like Helsinki and my brain just kind of engaged. And I think like literally the minute Alex said no, I'm like, well, of course not. It's Copenhagen. And then, you know, doy. And that that is one of the worst. That and when you ring in and you blank and you stand there and it's like the longest fucking eight seconds of your life. Right thing. You know, they're going, Tom, <laughs> Tom, 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 and you're going, hi, 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 So. Uh, Tom, what, what is Moscow? Well, there were questions about Russia that came up and they would clutch me with fear. You know, this Soviet leader died in 1953. And I'm like, I I have to resign from teaching if I don't get this. That's right. Yeah. So here's my question for you. Just explain to me the more serious thing of the arc of the career here and what led you down the path that you ended up going down. And, you know, how you ended up at the War College for as long as you were. And I know you kind of were going to retire and you kind of the world just kind of sucked you back into it. So I'm just kind of curious about like what the animating impulses of this intellectual pursuit that you've been on, which have been largely around, you know, military strategy, foreign policy, national security, particularly with an emphasis on Russia and the former Soviet Union. What was that? I started college as a chemistry major because like every working class kid, right? You just said, well, I don't know what jobs are available and STEM is always a job. So like all the kids that go to college in those days from a blue collar background, it's like, well, I'm going to be an engineer. I'll be doing major in business or what. I had a decent aptitude for chemistry and it Mm. bored me to tears after about six months. But I had taken some Russian classes and I was actually good at them. So I go for advising and this is really kind of shows you how, you know, how old I am in the historical contingency of things. My advisor at that time at BU says, well, if you can learn Russian and get a master's degree, you'll always have a job because there's always going to be a Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because yeah, yeah. there's always government work and consulting and sure, contracting sure. and all that stuff. And that actually did lead me to the war college, but indirectly, because when the Soviet Union collapsed, one of the reasons that I didn't get kept on at Dartmouth, aside from the fact that I was a really annoying junior faculty member that I probably would have fired as well, was that they just didn't want Soviet guys anymore. Right. And I had done all this stuff on the Soviet military and all that. So the war college took me in for a couple of years. And then really, it was a temporary job. I thought I was going to go back into a political science department or something. And so my temporary two years turned into 25 years because it just kind of worked out that way. Tom, I will say if annoying was a disqualifier professionally, you would have been sleeping in a bus shelter for the last like 30 years. I was like, <laughs> well, I don't you know, every, I but definitely if you're annoying and grading and, you know, outspoken as an assistant professor, you're kind of asking for it in those days. And I definitely was. I think about the various things that have made you more, uh, more of a public figure. You're in that cadre of people who 
were a, were a Republican your whole life, basically, right? And you were considered, you thought of yourself as a conservative? Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, but I was a Massachusetts Republican. I mean, I joined yeah. the, the Republican Party in Massachusetts in 1978, yeah. 79, when it was like Ed Brooks. The Communist Party, basically. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, and when I worked in the Senate, I worked for John Hines, who, you know, today right. would have been hounded <laughs> from the Republican Party. Yeah. So I was never a movement conservative. I was never right. one of those guys. And, you know, in the mea culpas uh, since Trump, I think part of the mistake that people like me made is we just wanted to believe that everybody on the bus was like us. We didn't want to look at who else was riding with us in that party and on that bus. Of course, I was obsessed with foreign policy. Right. I was a national security conservative. So right. I wasn't paying attention to, you know, what the Federalist Society was doing. I just didn't really click with all that stuff. And that was, you know, that's on me. You know, in this period, like a lot of Republicans we know, not certainly not all, but a lot, who are kind of what we would think of as being Republicans of the intellectual class, you had the moment where you decided you had to leave the Republican Party in a public way. You announced it and, and then talked about it on Morning Joe, a show we both go on with some frequency. Uh, in October of 2018, I'd like to play that. Sir Tom talking about his decision to leave the GOP in the time of Trump. Um, I've been a Republican since 1979. To leave a party you've been a member of for 40 years is not something you take lightly. I think to leave for good really required me to say there is no future in this party. I finally came to believe that uh, the Republican Party just cannot recover from the compromises that it's made. I mean, at some point you sell your soul, you don't get it back. So. The never Trump Republican phenomenon is one people are familiar with. And you, as you point out, we're not exactly like a hardcore, either rock ribbed, let alone like far right conservative anyway, movement conservative. But it seems to me that the things that were going on with Trump in that period, 2017 to 2021, dovetail in an important way with the last book that you wrote with Our Own Worst Enemy, because you're you're doing a very dark kind of diagnosis. I would say, by the way, all your book titles are very dark. Like every single one of them is like every single one is like a litany of negativity. Um, Holiday reading for the whole family. Yes. But you basically do it a diagnosis of what's fucked up about American democracy. You put it on really on the people. You can talk about it yourself better than I can. But essentially it was like, yeah, democracy is kind of fucked up and it's really your fault. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me to be also kind of in, inextricably linked into the kinds of things that were going on in the Republican Party that drove you out of it. So just talk about both of those elements of it. You know, that there's a sickness in the Republican Party, but it's a sickness that isn't just in the Republican Party, I think, in your view. Well, first, I have to say the first time I deregistered as a Republican, but I didn't kind of go public and make a big deal about it, that I just felt like I had to walk away. I called it my trial separation before the divorce was actually 2012 when Newt Gingrich won the South Carolina primary. And I said, I'm I'm sorry, you cannot be serious. Nobody could possibly think of Newt Gingrich as a president of the United (laughs) States. I mean, it's just not possible to do this because I was always a bipartisan voter. You know, I split my votes. In Massachusetts, everybody was a Democrat. Even the conservatives were Democrats. Right. You know, I worked in state politics for a working class guy from my town who was a liberal. He was a Democrat, but he was Polish Catholic. We had a lot in common. But what I what I came to realize, I think, at least in terms of this diagnosis with the Republicans, is that the thing I wrote about in Our Own Worst Enemy, about resentment and grievance and envy and this kind of inquit anger, had really just become the only thing the Republican Party was about. In 1980, and John, you remember this, when Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, the Republican Party has become the party of ideas. Like, the Democrats are out of ideas. Like 100%. it or not, the Republicans yeah. are the party of ideas in 1980. And by 2015, 2016, the Republicans are the party of pure emotion. I mean, I was always reluctant to kind of throw in with people on some issues on the left because I always felt like the left was 
you know, overly emotional. And it turns out now Republicans are the drama queens. But I think the left and the right together, the one thing that is common to both of them, and this is what I talk about in Our Own Worst Enemy, is this incredible sense of entitlement and narcissism and right. anger and this kind of solipsism that makes it completely impossible to have a rational conversation about anything where you don't completely get your way and people totally validate your point right. of view. You know, one of the things in the book that struck me, this takes me back a little bit, but one of my journalistic mentors was a guy named Michael Elliott, who was an editor at The Economist magazine when I first started writing for The Economist in 1990. And Mike was running the Washington Bureau. He invented all, basically all the political columns in The Economist and then went on to be the editor of Time International and the editor of Newsweek International and then ended up running the one campaign for Bono before he died, a very a sad and premature death in 2016 of cancer. And Mike wrote a book at one point in this period, which I was happy to help along with a little bit, but it was called The Day Before Yesterday. And the book was about this notion that the extraordinary period of time after World War II in America had raised everyone's expectations of what normal was, that the productivity gains, the GDP growth, the social cohesion, even with the obvious black marks of the fact that African-Americans were not fully integrated in American society, all of that, those things were all really unusual. Like it was so unusual and we came as a culture to think that that was normal and, and then our expect and permanent, right? And part of what's in your book is a little bit of that is that the entitlement that you talk about and the ways in which the entitlement has allowed for democracy itself to atrophy seems to me at least a, partly a function of that. People didn't look at that period and say, wow, this is a freak. A historical freak accident is after World War II and what that meant for American society. And we'll never see that again. And that's okay, because you just that's not the way societies are. That's Eden. You know, that's Valhalla. You know, so it seems to me part of your analysis kind of is rooted in that, is that that's where some of the solipsism, some of the entitlement, some of the kind of outsized, unreasonable expectations without being willing to work for shit come from, including work for democracy. And I think some of it is generational. I have to take all this shit all the time. People call me a boomer because I was born in 1960. But I think very much that my approach to this problem came because I don't have anything in common with the boomers. Right. I always point out, first year I was in high school, there were absolutely no U.S. combat troops. It was 1975. No U.S. Right. combat troops in Vietnam. I mean, the Vietnam to me as a high school freshman was ancient history. I mean, I knew there was a draft. I was never in danger of any of that stuff. So. Right. The emotion that I am really at war with here in the book and that I do associate with the boomers and with their grandchildren is nostalgia because I get so yeah. tired of this. Because to me, when you say, oh, the 70s, you know, those were great days. I'm like, I'm sorry. I graduated from high school in 1979. Those days were miserable. So I never had the expectation that the high gains were going to stay, the jobs were going to be plentiful, the interest rates were going to be low, because that was over by the time I got to high school. By the yeah. time I got to high school, it was whip inflation now and the misery index and, you know, houses at 18%, all of that stuff. And it drives me nuts. When I wrote Our Own Worst Enemy, I got letters I even got a letter from a guy who had grown up in my hometown, but like 15 years before me. He's like, I don't know, Tommy. So I remember it. it was a really great time. And I said, because you were a working class white guy with a union job and yeah, you, weren't, yeah. you weren't getting drafted, you yeah. know, and the drop forge or the tire company for that golden shining moment, it was okay for you. But what's really nuts is when their grandchildren, the younger kids come to me and say, you had it easy. You grew up in the city that that was a golden era. It's like, 
that's a nostalgia for a time that never existed. And both the older people and the younger people have constructed this fantasy of how great things once were. And if the United States can't deliver that now, then democracy sucks and democracy has to be replaced. And it's just, it's all based on lying to yourself about yeah. nostalgia. And it's really startling. It's juvenile is what it really is. It's childish. And yet here yeah, we are. Here we are. We are going to take one more break and we'll be back with more of the great Tom Nichols on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. One of the places where the questions of nostalgia creep in in some quarters is when it comes to the topic of music. <laughs> we have to go there because, well, we just have to. So I will start this in a narrative fashion and say that, you know, Tom Nichols, someone kind of becoming a public figure in a way in their other time he quit the Republican Party, just, you know, in the kind of 2018 period, smart guy, invited on television to talk about foreign policy, quits the Republican Party in October. And then in November, when everyone had good feelings, basically, about Tom, the world was like on his side for having bailed on Trump and taken the stand to principle. A conversation took place on MSNBC's morning show, Morning Joe, an unexpected conversation, I would say, which I was unfortunately present for it. And it now lives in infamy because it began a defining kind of framework for how people think about Tom Nichols. And I will play the sound right now. This is, you know, well, it still appalls me. Let's play it. Jay Caruso actually uh, sent me a message and said that uh, you hate Led Zeppelin. We just want to we just want to mark that down as a lie here and give you a chance to defend yourself. I've been out on national television on, about Led Zeppelin. I have to admit it. Uh, I've never been a Led Zeppelin fan. Oh God! Um, Oof, this God. is. I know it's. Tom. I. It, Tom, well, it Tom was nice here. being with you. <laughs> Tom, I, Tom, I was willing. I guess was it's willing over. To, I was willing to stand up for you on the on the Boston debut, but you're telling me that you're up. You think that Boston is a better band than Led Zeppelin? I, I'm telling you that Tom, I would rather listen to side one of really, Boston Tom, any Led yeah, Zeppelin album. Time to, Tom, it's time, it's, time, it's time to hang it up, bud. Yeah. Time to hang it up. I, I think my car's outside. Yeah, you, yeah, you better here. get in it fast. Thank you so much, Tom, I guess. Holy cow. <laughs> Holy cow, more or less. Excuse it now. I'm going to give you a little chance and then we're going in here, but I do have, and I know you, you on Twitter, you pretend like you don't regret making these obviously idiotic statements, but you can't really think that it's good for your public image or, or it's true that like, that like Boston's a better band than Led Zeppelin. Well, let me just say that if anything proves that I don't say shit just to be popular, this ought to do it. Yeah, I'd say so. You know, I never expected to become a public I don't know, public figure, public intellectual, mm. you know, coming from the war college, by the way, we were kind of discouraged to be, I mean, we're a military institution. We don't do that kind of stuff. But, you know, I say what's in my heart, John. I would never say that Boston is a better or technically more competent band than Led Zeppelin. I'm going to say that I grew up with a very pop sensibility. And as actually on a serious note, my hmm. friend Dennis Herring and I have talked about this at length. I think part of it is that I grew up and the whole part of my musical education as a kid that's missing is I never listened to the blues. So I have no place in my heart where that yeah. was. And I was totally a kind of pop music, Beatles, top 40 guy. Yeah. But I will still say, and I'm going to come back at you here because that conversation began when Joe Scarborough called you a music snob, which you most certainly are. 
You yeah. are a curator of yeah. music. You are. Yeah, I have. I know a lot about music and I have a lot of I have very good taste. That's yes, well, exactly. It's like me and, you know, my other great Internet moment when I said that I, I hated Indian food. And of course, it's because I my taste buds, you know. But well, your taste buds are clearly like your earbuds. You know, it's like the same thing. They're like a defective, right? My belly button. But yeah. I, I admit it. I mean, I have tried I, when you went off about Velvet Underground. I think I told you that day. I said, OK, you know, John's a friend. He's telling me to revisit this. And I sat and I kind of put my feet up and I put on an hour of Velvet Underground. And I'm like, nope this still doesn't do it for me. And I, yeah. I think it's almost like you end up liking it because you have this notion of its importance and we're in musical history. No. But does that mean people listen to it? Yeah, that's not that's not true. Tom, the thing is that, that I think you're really making a point here is like there's people who like can't taste cilantro, right? Like they have a <laughs> their, their taste buds don't work on some level. And that unfortunately applies to all of your musical tastes. And I can here's how I prove it, right? This is how I prove it. I, and I always <laughs> like people who speak their heart, you know? And again, unfortunately, your heart apparently doesn't have ears attached to it either. Here's the thing. <laughs> Here's the thing. You know, on Twitter, this has become now a running thing. And Tom, you do a thing on, on the weekends on Twitter, the hashtag AT40, America's Top 40. There's a discussion among a bunch of, <laughs> I don't want to call them boomers, just a bunch of like, yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. There are a bunch of people there who, people who like- age, let's just who enjoy Who enjoy trashing Tom and sometimes enjoy, sometimes enjoy defending him on these matters. But here's one of the things that was said by you on Twitter, which I which I thought it was one thing to claim that I would rather listen to Boston than listen to Led Zeppelin. But then came this December 19th, 2020, this tweet. I will listen to Toto all day over Led Zeppelin. Now, I I, I, I wanna I just I want to pause before you say anything, okay? I would like now first to play uh SOT 16, please. Okay, so that famous Led Zeppelin song called Whole Lot of Love. I would now like to play Toto. Now, I'd like to, to ask, you know, <laughs> I mean, the funny thing about this for anybody who doesn't see the video here is that Tom like looked like he was about to vomit when the Led Zeppelin was <laughs> playing, a whole lot of love's playing, and he looked like he was about to throw up. And I, actually, that was enough to do the podcast for, just to watch the displeasure on Tom's <laughs> face. And then the weird, like kind of slightly satisfied smile listening to the beginning of the Toto song. You're going to stand up here right now, and you're going to stick by this, aren't you? The you Toto, right Toto that Toto is a better band no, than Led Zeppelin. I, you know, is, is, uh, that you like is Toto better? That than I like Toto better, yes. Because it's not that Toto, see, your your problem is you say, Led Zeppelin is so great that to like something better, you're arguing that they are yet greater. I'm saying Led Zeppelin is so terrible that almost anything is like a balm to the soul after you turn it off and put something else on. You were playing that Led Zeppelin clip, and all I could think of was, why you do this to me, Dimmy? 
why are you torturing me this way? And you know, I, I'm a yacht rock guy. I'm a top 40 guy. It's just Robert Plant's voice literally like gives me arrhythmias or something. It just annoys the shit out of me and I can't listen to it. Well, I think this is actually sort of proving the point that there just is something wrong with you, which has really always been my kind of position. I want to just for the sake of it, this will make the <laughs> illustration just a little bit more because there's no point in not having Tom on here without making listen to just a little more Led Zeppelin for exactly this reason. Let's play rock and roll. And then I'm going to play another song on the other side of it, not Toto, but another song that Tom loves. So let's play Led Zeppelin here, Rock and Roll. Now a song that Tom loves, and I'm certain loves, I've never asked the question directly, but apparently on the basis of what he's written about this, this is a song that he would prefer to listen to any day and twice on Sunday than listen to the great Led Zeppelin classic rock and roll here. Let's play side number 13, please. David Gates, boy, played a band called Bread at one point, and that Tom had made the claim in a tweet not long ago, in this month, March of 2022, The Goodbye Girl, this is a great movie theme, and I want none of anyone's cynical slagging of this lovely song. You heard me, Tom. John, I bet there are people listening to this right now saying, why did you not let that song finish? <laughs> no, no, no. no anybody, who's, anybody who says that can now unsubscribe to this podcast. <laughs> Undownload all episodes. I I, I have to tell you, there's a personal connection to rock and roll by Led Zeppelin, which is that when I was a teenager, my buddies all had a band, you know, typical basement band. And I was kind of like just a hanger on and a sort of a roadie pal. And because I, I, you know, it was cool. And they were my friends and I helped them move their stuff around and, you know, all that stuff. And they played that. That was like one of their big, they did rock and roll by Led Zeppelin. And it struck me that like, Musically, this was a pretty simple song. It's a few chords. High school kids can play it. The drum part, you know. Yes. And I'm like, yes. Okay. That's what we call rock and roll, Tom. I think this is the thing. I mean, I think we're getting really to the core of this now. And I'm going to feel good about it because we've discovered basically that rock, like, you know, he says I'm a yacht rock fan. Yacht rock is not rock. Okay. But I do. You've never asked me about this. Christopher Cross's Sailing is right. not a rock song. It has, but, it has not, neither a rock song. What I like that's rock and roll. I'm a big fan, for example, of The Who. And not only that, but I think the best Who album is Who by Numbers, which Who fanatics, you know, you know, it's not the early stuff. I just kind of like, you know, that, see, that, that to me is rock and roll. I like the Kinks. Like, I like a lot of other stuff. I just don't like, what was it somebody once called Led Zeppelin, like the greatest garage band plagiarizers in history or something? It's just... To me, it's just noise. Led Zeppelin to me is 
pretentious noise. Yes. There is plenty of rock and roll that I love that I will turn up so that it shakes the house. Of course, in a more intimate moment, I think I'd prefer David Gates to the immigrant yes. song. And you'd prefer Christopher Cross to any of these things, I think, at, at bottom. <laughs> and I think there is some therapy you could seek or some chemicals that I could get you prescribed as a licensed pharmacologist. I'm sure I can take care of it. But in the end, that's the core of it, I think, is that, you know, the whole notion of like, I mean, like, I'm sure like Iggy and the Stooges would be like, you would rather like have an ice pick driven in your ears than listen to like Iggy Pop. You know, it's just yesterday, and I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, this picture I put up when I was in DC yesterday, I was with all these guys that were all in like leather and gothed up yeah, and stuff. Yeah, and we were talking yeah. about music because I said, you're giving me this kind of warm. Because <laughs> you said, you said my name's Tom Nichols and I'm widely hated for my yes. musical taste. Well, also, let, me, <laughs> let me inflict some of it on I, you. I didn't, tell, I didn't tell them any of that because I wanted the conversation to last more than a few minutes. <laughs> but I but I said, you guys are giving me this kind of warm feeling about Kenmore Square in Boston in like 1982. And the other thing is when you say rock and you have this very kind of boomerish 60s 70s, I really don't Tom 70s. I listen to, I, I, I was listen a to, new I was a new wave guy I was all about now I wasn't a huge fan of Iggy and the Stooges but you know I remember the New York Dolls I remember the Dead Kennedys I remember Mission of Burma I remember you know all that stuff that was happening and I didn't I didn't hate it um, okay, that's, now I, this is getting confusing. The fact that Tom Nichols like likes the dead Kennedys and the goodbye girl. I'm now like, I really do actually think you need therapy because I don't understand. I thought it was just like a missing gene or something, but it turns out that there's some, I mean, the, like you like the dead Kennedys. Okay, like that's, now we have an interesting- Well, I mean, like, I, because it was part of my youth. I mean, it was part of the, the music that was surrounding me and I liked- the cars, a band you probably wouldn't cross the street. I love the cars. Oh, no, I love the cars. I love the cars. Love the cars. Love the cars. But I voted for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at one point. I love All the right. Cars. See, now that surprises me about you because I figured they'd be too slick and commercial. Yeah, for you. we're fine. See, this is the thing is I have very, actually, very Catholic musical tastes, but I. I don't like think there's no point in talking to you about bands that I like that started after 1990 because I assume you're unfamiliar with them. It's like there's not like any music that you. Oh, that's there's not. There's no. I'm I'm being I'm being snotty. I'm, I'm being that was that was a purely snotty comment. No, but no, listen. I mean, there is a point. You're you're right, and I think you know. I I kind of agree with that. You know, rock and roll is a kind of youth oriented, you know, art form. But after the 90s. Yeah, I mean, I had a harder time relating to some stuff, but I also, I also, I'm very happy with my Decemberist albums and you know right. stuff okay. like that. So yeah, you're sort of sliding into your lazy boy with your wine spritzer and your <laughs> Dan Axon kind and of a little toto and, and nodding off in a little toto. All right, I want to, I want to get to a hard turn back to our real topic here. And I said I wanted to come back to Joe Biden. There are a number right. of issues that I want to talk about related to politics again. That was a very good, a very good. It, in this these dark times, Tom, I keep trying to tell people it's like you know in these dark times you need to have the occasional walk in the woods. Yeah, we got to be able and, to talk about something else now and then. And have a drink or have a smoke or whatever your right. thing is and then come back to the seriousness of the moment. And it is obviously a very serious moment. A very serious moment indeed and one that requires apparently a lot more words to get to all the topics that we wanted to cover with Tom Nichols. And so that's why we ended up with a two-part episode here with Tom Nichols on Hell and High Water. Tomorrow, tune in again, please, for part two in which Tom and I discuss Joe Biden prospect that we might be headed for or maybe we're already in world war three chemical weapons nuclear weapons and the stakes even beyond russia and ukraine in the russia and ukraine fiasco see you tomorrow